The text is Galatians 6, verses 1 through 5. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. Father, we pray that you would uh, guide us now, open our ears, that we might hear your voice. I pray, Lord, that uh, you would uh, guide us each, that we would learn from you this day, in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I don't know if the font is really smaller on the bulletin today, but it sure looks smaller. I have a giant print Bible now, and it looks normal, so maybe that's my problem. Uh, While we were in Lincoln, uh, the latter part of last year, uh, I was preaching on a series in Galatians, and uh, the uh, last message was from the last uh, portion of chapter 5, so we ended up a chapter short. And so when I was choosing a text here, my wife immediately said, I must finish Galatians. So, uh, and actually, by God's providence, it, I think it's worked out pretty well because I'm scheduled to preach today and then next month and then in May once. And so we have three more messages in Galatians, and I think it works out perfectly. But for nearly all of us that weren't in Lincoln, I wanted to first kind of go through Galatians to familiarize you with the book since we'll finish it over the next three times I'm up here. And uh, it might be hard for you to take notes while we do this, but um, it might be helpful for you to at least turn to Galatians 1 and then walk with me through the first five chapters because I'll refer to various points. Uh, I'll read Galatians 1.1 and then I'll read basically several verses throughout this portion and then comment on them. Uh, Galatians 1.1, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. You can see that Paul starts out the letter to the Galatians very differently than he does all of his other letters. Uh, He starts out on the offensive as far as defending his apostleship. And that's because he was coming under attack by the Galatians concerning his apostleship. Uh, This letter to the Galatians is by far the briefest greeting he gives to any of the churches. The whole letter is really a rebuke to the Galatians. And so uh, we then go on to uh, verse 6. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. No sooner does he get past the greeting than we see the rebuke come full face. Let me give you a definition of the gospel. There's actually quite a good definition of the gospel, very brief, in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, but I'm going to read you one that Charles Spurgeon gave once at the end of a message. Our sins deserve punishment. God must and will punish sins. Jesus Christ came into this world and was punished in the place and in the stead of all that believe on him. That's the gospel in a nutshell. We sinned. We deserve hell because of that sin. Christ took sin upon him for all that would embrace him. So that's the gospel. Now let's go on to... uh, And so Paul just clearly wants to state what this is about. This is about the gospel. And uh, now we go on to verses 11 to 12. I want to make known to you, brethren, 
that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, the gospel of Christ was miraculous. It is miraculous. It is supernatural. And so it is not of this earth. There is nothing you can do that will earn you heaven. It is a supernatural act that God himself exercises. So Paul just wants to make clear that the gospel is supernatural. We have nothing to do with it. We cannot originate it. We cannot generate it. Now let's go to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 9. When James, Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Now what's beautiful about what has occurred here is this. Paul and Barnabas have gone to meet what were referred to at that time as the pillars of the Christian church. These three men were the Christian church. Paul was just this guy way up in this other city, another country. So to, for all practical purposes, these three men represented the church. Paul went there to meet them. Now, he'd met one or two of them before, but this is many years later. And he's been active with Barnabas up north for years. But he goes there, and he doesn't go there to seek their permission. He goes there to tell them what he's doing and, if necessary, to throw down with them. He is going to clarify what the gospel is. And if they disagreed with him, he was going to do battle with them. So, see, he did not go there as an inferior apostle. He went there in every respect as what I referred to in my message as a big A apostle. Because there are little A apostles. He's a big A apostle. And he's taking no backseat to these pillars in the church. And yet what's beautiful about this is they all then shake hands. We should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. The whole world was sorted out into two people groups. There are the Jews and the Gentiles. You take these Jews, we'll take those Gentiles. I mean, just amazing audacity. They're dividing the whole world up between five men. And then verse 11. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. We're getting here about how Peter, I believe this letter was written after Paul's first missionary journey. It's between the first and the second. And so he has returned home and now he has Peter come. And I believe he's preparing for a second missionary trip. And he has Peter come to essentially serve with him. And yet Peter starts distancing himself from the Gentiles when the visitors from Jerusalem came. And Paul, when he recognizes it, he immediately says, hey, wait a minute, what's going on? The picture of the Christian church, the Christian church that persists to this day, is the picture of Paul's church. Not the church in Jerusalem, the church that had kind of been corrupted by some favoritism for the Jews. That wasn't the church that typifies Christianity. The church that typifies Christianity is the one that Paul was building. And he would not allow Peter to jeopardize what he was building. And so he confronted Peter to his face. So during that uh, message, I talked about hypocrisy and about how Peter was uh, playing the hypocrite. And Paul took him to task for it immediately. Even Barnabas had been led astray. So Paul was obviously away at this point. But when he returns and he sees what's been going on, he takes them all to task for it. He recognized the hypocrisy. He rebuked it publicly, as he should do, as we'll actually see referenced in a text Paul writes to Timothy later. And he fixed it. He remedied it. He got the Jews and the Gentiles back together and saying, hey, you guys, you're not to artificially separate like you've been doing. So now we go on to Galatians 
I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Uh, during this message, I used the illustration of uh, Castaway, where on the island, uh, this man has this ball that he calls Wilson. And this ball is kind of akin to Judaism, the law. Because later, when, the, when God, through his providence, has brought this raft to him and he's escaping from the island, and yet the ball's floating away, he starts going after it. He's going after that law. That law got him through that life on the island, and now he wants it back. But he had to choose. He got to the end of the rope that he had tethered to his raft, and he had to choose one or the other, the ball or the raft, law or grace. You don't get both. So he chose grace. He swam back to the raft. And that's a picture, I think, of what Paul was commanding the people to do. You cannot earn righteousness. Never could. And we'll get to that. Galatians 3. And this goes fast, but you know, I, I wanted to go fast so that we could get to the rest of the, mat the material I just read about. Uh, Galatians 3, verses 6 and 7. Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. So see, justification has always been by faith for us, for everybody, for Adam in the garden, for Abraham in the wilderness, for Moses down in Egypt. All, all of it has always been through faith. The law did not present another form of salvation. Now, verse uh, 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. Christ redeemed us from this. And he's telling the Galatians, this is why Christ came. This is why he died. Why would you return to that? It's nonsense. Don't return to nonsense. Verses 17 to 18. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So again, he's emphasizing that, yes, the law came. Yes, the law is real. But the law did not annul the promise of salvation through faith. And so the law was different. And then what's interesting is you get to the very next question. What purpose, then, does the law serve? You see how logical this letter is. It, he he uh, supposes all of our questions. Why, then, the law? The law has two purposes. It restrains sin and it reveals sin. So it restrains sin from taking root both in our society and in our hearts, and it reveals sin. It shows you clearly where you are out of accord with perfection, because that's what the law is. The law is perfect, and we are not. We are imperfect. So it constantly reminds us of that. And many people are uncomfortable with that, and so they seek to reconcile it in some way. So Galatians 3.26 for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, this is where he's getting to the heart of what had gone down earlier with Peter. There is this favoritism within the body. There is this uh, choosing up of sides. He fought it here in Galatia. He fought it with the Corinthians. It's just something that's always endemic in the church. We think that there are classes of Christians. We think that there are classes of children. But I think you've all probably heard the phrase, God has no grandchildren. God has no stepchildren. If you're a child of God, you're a child of God. He has one begotten son. All the rest of us are adopted, but yet God does not discriminate amongst the rest of us. So let's go on to chapter four. 
chapter 4, verse 9. But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? And here it's a beautiful pleading with them to retain the freedom that they have in Christ. They are casting it away. And during this message, I pointed out the freedom that we in this country are casting away. We are free, and yet we don't value it. We want slavery, and so we're casting it away. And Paul is pleading with them in the same way regarding their spiritual freedom. They are abdicating it. They are abandoning it. They are giving it away for nothing, for less than nothing. It's stealing them from them. Galatians 4 verses 21 to 31, and I won't read any one verse because it's kind of tough to pull one thing out that summarizes it, but here he talks about the mountain that cannot be touched, the mountain of the law, Hagar, and you do not come to that mountain. We come to God. We come directly to God. We have the, the, the luxury of entering into his throne room with our freedom. And so there are these two covenants of law and grace, and yet the covenant of grace preceded the covenant of law. It is greater than the covenant of law, and it persists now. It is always the covenant of grace that saves us. 5.1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Again, he's saying, stand fast, uh, do not allow opposition to overwhelm you in your celebration of your liberty. Retain your liberty. You have to fight for it. And verse 13. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So he's emphasized that they're free, but now he brings them back to their responsibility. Now that you're free, now that you can do anything you want, what do you want to do? That's really what he's saying. Do you want to just go and enjoy your freedom? Go be a will-o'-the-wisp, travel the world with all your money? No. You want to serve God with all your wealth. And so that's what he's bringing them down to, anchoring them back to earth to say, use your liberty to serve God. Don't use your liberty to indulge in fleshly pursuits. And so now we're at verse 16. I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So see, this is in a sense a warning. This is saying, okay, you're free. You're free to go do this. You're free to go chase sin if you want to. You will not like it. If you're a child of God, you will regret it. You will pay the price because God will hound you. The hounds that, uh, what is it, Martin Luther that spoke of the hounds of heaven? So that's our little brief summary of Galatians 1 to 5. So that's where we find ourselves in this letter. Paul has gone through all of this. And also one of the things about the latter, port, latter portion here in Galatians 5 is he's chronicled 18 very evil sins. He's talking about adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries. Um, but then he goes on to the fruits of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So he's contrasting for them the actions that typify people of the earth. Who do you want to be? Who's the pattern that you want to follow? Do you want to follow this pattern of, of uh, dissipation? Or do you want to follow this productive pattern that God has established? So, let's reread the text today. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill 
the law of Christ. I'll stop right there and I'll read the rest later. But uh, I want to focus first on his very, very first word of chapter 6, and it is brethren. So he's talking to everybody. He's not just talking to me. He's not just talking to the elders of the church. He's talking to every person in the church. Brethren, if a man if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. So now, this advice is for everybody. It's not just for the leaders. It's not just for the few. It's for the many. So let's look at this phrase, if a man is overtaken in any trespass. First, the context tells us that the trespass seemed to have overwhelmed the person that committed the trespass. This wasn't something that they were planning to do. This is not a premeditated sin that this person fell into. This is something that just suddenly overwhelmed him. Nor does the person appear to be in denial of what has happened. They're acknowledging it. They're admitting it. But this that they fell into has kind of awakened them to the fact that, wow, I thought I was stronger than this. I didn't realize that I was this weak. So it's pointed out to the person that fell their weakness. And the text suggests that they're disturbed by it. It bothers them that they fell into whatever sin is that they committed. So now, this advice here, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted, if a man is overtaken in any trespass. This Paul obviously is uh, orienting towards something particular, I believe. The, you know, commentators debate on whether this is kind of just more general information or whether there's something specific in his mind. But it seems to me that there is something at least that's causing him to, to speak in this context. But uh, we don't know what it is, but we can see what it is that he's telling us to do about it. This is obviously serious enough to warrant concern. Paul is concerned about it. He tells the bystander, whomever this is, this man, to pay attention. Also, this is the man Anthropos. This is the general man. This is man and woman. This is all of us. So he's telling us, let's get involved. Now, there are instances where we're not to get involved. As a matter of fact, Scripture commends us for not getting involved in other people's lives. We can't go chasing after every sin in the congregation. It would drive everybody buggy. And so, where are we to draw the line? I don't know. I'm not going to tell you that. But it's kind of like when Ed Meese defined pornography, you know, that, uh, that Supreme Court justice did. I can't define it, but I can tell you it when I see it. So that's kind of the same thing here, I think. It's, it's really where, in the context, you see it and you think, okay, it was either a sin against you or it was a sin against someone else, right? We know that. It could have been directly against God as well. But someone saw it. You saw it. And you have to make the decision right then and there, perhaps, as to whether this is something that you should let slide. If it's serious, like it was with Peter and Paul, boy, Paul just jumped on him publicly right there. Didn't even give Peter a chance to breathe. He just jumped all over him publicly. But see, that was a very public sin. It was something that was undermining the church, and Paul needed to deal with it. So all sins are different. They're all over the spectrum. And we sin every day. To not admit that we sin every day is to then seek perfectionism. And of course, we try to perfect others before we perfect ourselves. And that's where the problem comes in. So we must 
uh, bear with people through sin, oftentimes. We can't just be jumping on them. Uh, a man's glory is to overlook a transgression, Proverbs 19.11 says, and, and Peter says, love will cover a multitude of sins. As a matter of fact, when I read Jay Adams, and I've mentioned it here before, but when I read Jay Adams' book on church discipline, the very first step in church discipline is for everybody to overlook sin to the degree that you can. And yet, we all know when it comes time to talk to somebody about sin that they can over, no longer overlook. It, it's endemic. The person doesn't know it. They keep sinning either against you or against others, and it must be dealt with. But this one is obviously something that's a little bit in the middle because right away the person recognized it, right? So there's your first distinction. Does the person know what they're doing? Do they know that they're doing wrong? This person does. Now, the next word I want to talk about in here is you who are spiritual. You who are spiritual. Who wants to admit they're not spiritual? You know? So this is a critical self-assessment here. You who are spiritual, restore such a one. So Paul is telling you to be honest with yourself. Are you currently in a position to be able to rebuke this person for what they've done? Not everybody is. He began by saying, brethren, everybody, all-encompassing. But now he says, you who are spiritual. So he's taking a subset. Not all of us in this room would be qualified to do what it is that Paul is commanding the spiritual to do. Not all of us are spiritual, at least not at the time that it is called upon for us to be so. So now, that really asks the question then, how do we know then if we're spiritual? Well, didn't he just give them the instructions in chapter 5? He ran down the list. He listed those 18 sins. He listed those nine fruits of the Spirit. Assess yourself. Assess yourself. And, and he's calling for us to be honest in this. Now, the next word, the action word, is restore. The spiritual person is to restore this person. And what does that mean? What does it mean to restore someone? Before we answer that question, let me bring up two other R words that might come into context in a similar situation or, a, or a, a, at least in this type of situation where you're confronting sin. Another one is rebuke. So instead of a restore, you might have to rebuke. As a matter of fact, earlier I alluded to this. Paul said to Timothy, rebuke in the presence of all. Rebuke an elder who is sinning in the presence of all. If it was a public sin the elder did, he's to be rebuked publicly, just as Paul did Peter. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you, Solomon says in Proverbs 9. So rebuke is called for at times. Another one is remove. Remove. And this is what Paul advised them to do with the man that was sleeping with his father's wife in 1 Corinthians 5. Deliver such a one to Satan. That means remove him from your assembly. Kick him out of the church. Kick him out into Satan's realm. Here we're in God's realm. There we're in Satan's realm kick him out. So we have restore, rebuke, remove. These are different things that we might do relative to a person. But obviously here he said restore. And so what does restore mean? Well, let's say that we were walking down the sidewalk. And for whatever reason, we don't even know, it just happened so fast, we've fallen off the sidewalk. We're down on the shrubbery outside. 
Well, to restore you means to help you back up onto the path and continue on your merry way down the sidewalk. So to be restored is to be brought back onto the path. So for us as Christians, we are on a Christian walk. And that Christian walk has certain practices that we do. For one of them, it's acknowledging our sin, repenting of our sin, seeking uh, God's face each day. So that's the walk to which this person is being restored. Now, it also might mean restore, restoration of a fellowship or a friendship. This sin might have been against somebody. And so there might need to be uh, situations amended here, relationships mended. As a matter of fact, in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, he's admonishing them for not wel welcoming back that young man who had been sleeping with his father's wife. Because now he wants back into the church. He's acknowledged his sin. And yet now they're treat treating him like a second-class citizen. You're not good enough for us. Go away. You know, come back next spring. You know, no, that's not the way it works. You know, we're to forgive. And Jesus went into great detail about that. If your brother comes to you seven times, no, seven times, 70 times. So we are told to restore relationships, and that's what we'll do. Now, the next portion says, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. This goes back to talk to that spiritual aspect. We might be spiritual. We might not be spiritual enough. Because what we're talking about here is the ability to overcome the temptation that this man fell to. We might fall to the same temptation. I think I'd mentioned to you before that there was a young man, when I became a believer, I was in this service, and boy, the first thing they do in the service when you become a believer is throw you out into the streets. You're out there witnessing on the streets immediately, and they guilt you into doing it. And I was scared to death. And so this one night, it's a Saturday night, of course, you know, you have to be out there when the drunks are out. And so I'm out there witnessing, and uh, there's a young guy who I was witnessing with, and he says, hey, I heard that there's a, a, a basically a... Uh, well, what, how should I phrase it? But uh, there's a place where you can get a massage down the street at, you know, 10 o'clock on a Saturday night. So he and I went down there. We're going to confront these women that are offering these massages. So we go into this parlor of this place, and this guy immediately starts flirting with these women. And I was like, well, I don't know what he's doing here, but it's not the same purpose that I would have in coming to this place. So I just dragged his rear end out of there. I don't think he was spiritual enough to be where he was. I think he was wanting to play with fire, and he was dragging me along for the, for the uh, uh, camaraderie or something. But so we got out of there. He was not spiritual enough to be attacking Satan's realm as he was attempting to that night with me. But so let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. That's what uh, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. So we who are spiritual have to recognize our own limitations. And I don't believe that man did. As a matter of fact, I think he was giving in to them that night. But I knew my limitations. I knew I didn't want to be in that room, regardless of what I was saying to those girls. I couldn't be there either rebuking them or flirting with them. So I got out. Now, Jesus also said in Matthew 17, when the man had come with his son and said, your disciples could not remove the demon from my son. And Jesus said, this kind comes out only through prayer and fasting. Every one of the disciples he'd sent out couldn't deal with it, or at least the ones that had tried to. So there is a power that is available to us through prayer and fasting that not everybody avails themselves of. So again, the spiritual, the spiritually strong would have availed themselves of this and would be prepared to deal with whatever it is that is tempting that man. Now, 
all of that, including Galatians 1 through 5, as well as what I just said, is really preparation for what's coming now. And that's when we get to verse 2. Verse 2 says this, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So what does it mean for us to bear one another's burdens? Well, part of it is probably this, to tolerate one another. That at a bare minimum. But I think there's more intended here. We are to bear one another's burdens. And that means to help them. Practically help people. How can we practically help people? Well, first, it means that you get involved. How can you help people if you're not involved in their lives, if you don't know what's going on in their lives? So to help people practically would be, in our culture, at least to stay in communication with them, to talk to them here at church, to communicate with them by, by phone during the week, especially when you know that they need you. You know, people shouldn't always have to seek one another out if they need help. If, if you've already told people that you need help, really, it, it, they, they kind of owe it to you to check up on you. And I would be the first to admit that it's tough for me to do that. I, I'm just out of sight, out of mind. I'm off to my busy week, and I'm not really worrying about people. I might pray for them if I remember, but I'm too slow in contacting people, calling people, emailing them even. But uh, that's me, and that's to some degree all of us. So what is it then that we're to do? We're to get involved in their lives, get messy. They might need money. They might need prayer. They might need a study partner an encouragement partner, all of those things get us messy. And yet that's what we should be doing. To bear one another's burdens, the burden might be messy. Let's bear it. Let's get messy with them. So verse 2, at the very end, says, and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is a law that we are urged to fulfill, not that one that we are urged to let go. So we're urged to fulfill this law. What is this law? What is the law of Christ? I don't know that it's really clearly stated in any one place, but we know what it is. God has given us that knowledge, I believe intuitively, as we become Christians and study his word. It's the law of forgiveness. It's the law of kindness. It's the law of gentleness. It's the law of applying all of the fruits of the Spirit that he's blessed his church with. So we apply those. As we apply those, we are fulfilling the law of Christ. Now, verse 3 says this, and this I think is especially uh, important for all of us. Perhaps I know, I know it's very important to me. If anyone thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So what is Paul saying? Is Paul saying we are all nothing? Is he really saying that? If anyone thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. He's not calling us all a bunch of nothings. But he is calling some of us nothings. He really is. And so we have to understand this. He is admonishing us to guard against self-delusion. And I have a few examples of self-delusion that you might find funny. In 19, and these are in chronological order from the oldest to the most recent. Although they're all from the 70s and the 80s, so I don't know why that's important. In 1976, along with the SAT test that uh, students took that year, a million students took this test, the uh, test uh, creators had them answer a question. And the question had to do with getting along with others. They were to rate themselves on how they believed they got along with others. 
And one in four of the million students that took the SAT that year rated themselves as being in the top 1% of getting along with other people. It's delusional. 25% of the people can't fit into 1% of the population. But that's what they felt about themselves. The following year, at the University of Nebraska, 1977, in a survey, 95% of the faculty of the University of Nebraska rated themselves above average. Now, Gary wasn't there then, <laughs> so we don't know how he'd have answered that question. But really, imagine yourself. You're getting a question. You're, they're answering a question. The faculty is probably, or the, the administration is probably given to you. Rate yourself. Are you above average or below average? Who's going to check below average? I mean, we could assign that, and we'd probably be 95% above average. I, I don't think I would check below average. It might get you fired. Who knows? And yet, also, my wife knows I'm delusional, so she's t reminded me that at times. Um, as a matter of fact, she'll tell me uh, that you should get in shape. I say, I am in shape. <laughs> Round is a shape. <laughs> and I'll tell her, I'll tell her, you don't really even want me in shape, because if I get in shape, some young woman will try to take me off your hands. She'll say, well, now we're back to delusional again. <laughs> so now uh, we're moving up to 1981. And in a USA driving survey, 93% of drivers rated themselves above average. That's in the USA. You know, the, the really odd thing here is in Sweden, they did the same test in 1981. 68% of drivers rated themselves above average. So that shows a huge difference nationally between our opinions of our driving abilities. Now, maybe we are that much better. I don't know. Maybe, it, maybe the Swedes have brought the whole you know, statistic down for the world, and we're the better ones. And uh, the last one I wanted to share was kind of more personal. It, it's from Tabitha in my past. Um, before we were married, we both worked at Hughes Aircraft, and there was a woman that my wife worked with. Her name was Susan, and she was this tiny Filipino thing. I mean, she couldn't have been more than 4'8", but she truly thought she was taller than many of her friends who were at least five feet tall. I mean, they were at least four, five, six inches taller than her. But when you'd talk to her, she thought she was taller than those people. She truly thought that. That's delusional. That's us deceiving ourselves. We are prone to this. All of us are. She's not alone. Susan isn't alone. Um, as a matter of fact, my son has come back from Taekwondo. You know, he's sprouted up like a weed lately. And he says, yeah, all my fellow students are this high. I mean, I mean that's shorter than the munchkins on the Wizard of Oz, you know. <laughs> I know those kids aren't that short. But to him, he just feels like he's towering over them all, so they're all midgets now. Now, uh, note here, Paul does not say that we're all nothing. But some people truly are spiritually Nothing. And let me give you an illustration. How can it be that people are nothing spiritually? Well, first, I would say that anybody who's an unbeliever is spiritually nothing. And why is that? Is it that they have no good advice for anybody? No, of course, that's not it. But anybody is nothing if they're not connected to Christ, connected to Christ. So you have to be connected to Christ to be anything. All of our somethingness is through Christ. Any somethingness that you are or have is only due to Christ. It's not due to you. But all unbelievers are at nothing, but yet I believe also believers can be nothing too. 
And let me give you an illustration. And I researched electric fences for this uh, illustration. Um, and I was kind of surprised to hear this. I think I, uh, someone had told me a story about this. And I'll bet, you know, living in Nebraska, I'll bet some of you even know this. But uh, if I'm standing next to an electric fence and I touch my friend and I touch that fence, I shock them. I don't shock me. I shock them. Because they're the one, it goes through me and it goes through them to the ground. I don't know why that is, but so people do that out in, out in and that's how we get our kicks in Nebraska, you know. <laughs> we take people out to electric fences and shock them. But, but you see, you are conducting that electricity. You have something in you for that time. So now let's imagine that that, that fence is Christ. You're connected to Christ. Your connection to Christ enables you to conduct to other people. You can touch them. You can touch their lives. You're spiritually affecting them. And yet, and you guys with your electrical degrees, you, you'll know better how to word this perhaps, but let's say that I'm not just connected to Christ through this means or an electric fence, but let's say that I can connect to this and gain some uh, capacity in me to hold that. As Christians, we can do that. We can be on to Christ and then let go and benefit people, but it dissipates. It's not flowing into us anymore. And so if it's not coming in and it's going out, we empty out. And many Christians are faced with that. They empty themselves out and they don't go back to Christ for more. They don't stay connected to Christ such that they can be a constant conduit of this spiritual strength. So see, that's why Paul is saying this that we can be nothings and not even know it, not even admit it, because we're delusional. And he's warning us against this. He said, that's no way to live your Christian lives. If you're a nothing, admit you're a nothing. Get something from Christ such that you can share it with others. Uh, Paul said in Romans uh, 7.18, In me, that is, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Now, perhaps you're uncomfortable with this antithesis, something or nothing. You know, there are a lot of nothings out there, and we can be among the nothings, uh, at least as believers for a period of time, to the degree that we're disconnected from Christ. And especially as we look around our culture and we see how many dead churches there are with dead people in them that speak the words of the Bible but have no life in them, how can we say that they're nothing? The only thing I would say is that you have to go with God's word. God's word is proclaiming that. It's not me. It's not us. It's God's word. So if there is a dead church with dead leaves and there is a leaf that has a little bit of life in it, just from residual life in the tree, that leaf needs to go find another tree to live on. And that's where so many people in dead churches are reluctant to do that nowadays. But this church has pretty stained glass windows. Your church has nothing. You don't even have any windows here. I don't want to be in this place. I want to go back to my beautiful church with the stained glass windows. Well, obviously they're putting something before Christ that they shouldn't. Verse 4. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 said, No other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And here he goes on to boasting, to rejoicing. And you might think that, oh, it's so, it's so rude of Paul to boast. 
But he does boast at times. Now, it's true that he does talk about there being boasting that is evil, boasting that is wrong. But there is boasting that is good. Listen to what he wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 1.12. Right at the beginning of the letter. Our boasting is this. The testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity. Not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. Paul is boasting on his behalf as well as on the behalf of those that had accompanied him to Corinth. He's saying, I know when I was with you that I did God's work. And he's telling the Galatians the same thing. I know I was doing God's work with you and I boast of that proudly. So see, he's telling them, the sin is yours. This isn't a, hey, let's, you know, their mistakes have been made. That isn't what Paul is saying. Yes, mistakes have been made and they're yours. He's just pointing his finger at the Galatians, saying, you need to take this seriously. You're throwing off all of the love that you had for me. You're throwing off all of the truth that I shared with you. Just, and this is recently. This is probably within two years he's been at Galatia. And yet they're throwing this off because they've had these deceivers come in and lead them astray, lead them into another gospel. And then he goes on in verse 5, for each one shall bear his own load. And this is kind of puzzling. This is really puzzling. In verse 2, he said this, bear one another's burdens. And in verse 5, he says, for each one shall bear his own load. Paul loved doing this. He loved presenting things in kind of a paradoxical form. So he uses the same word here, bear, but he's really speaking about two different things. And he's marrying them up without explicitly marrying them up. He's forcing us to make the connection. In verse 2, the idea is about helping one another. In verse 5, the idea is about accepting responsibility, about facing reality, about getting past any self-delusions. And so these two must balance one another out. We must act as individuals responsibly and assess ourselves properly and bear our own burdens. And yet, collectively, it is our desire to not only bear our own burdens, but to help anyone that comes within our sphere of influence. If you're spiritual, you can do that. If you're connected to Christ, you can do that. But to the degree that you come to church and you have not been connected to Christ, you're of no help to other people. It's empty words that you're saying. The Spirit of God is not going to flow through you into those other people. Now, this isn't that we can control the Spirit of God, but it is how God chooses to operate on this earth through us. The Spirit of God is a person. He will do His will just like Jesus said. The Spirit blows, the wind blows where it will. So is the Spirit of God. But yet, God does tell us in His Word that the degree to which we obey Him, the degree to which we get involved in people's lives, the Spirit will work. If He's flowing through us, He will work. Uh, you know, I was watching the Olympics and there was one of the skating races where there are four people on each team and they start out at opposite ends of this rink and they go around, I don't know, five or six times or whatever. But by the time they're done, you can see that they're exhausted and their weakest skater is the one that they've kind of kept protected in the back of the pack because they'll have the best ones out in the front cutting, cutting the, the draft. But in the American race, the weakest skater just started falling off. You know, the last half a lap, I mean, she was just losing a step like every four or five steps. And so by the time the finish occurred, she was way behind. But they had led the whole time. 
I forget who they were racing, the Germans maybe. But anyway, that's a good illustration of life, I believe. That's a good illustration of when we are called upon to bear one another's burdens. In that instance, you can't, right? They've failed the team. They've failed to do their part. They've fallen behind. What are you going to do about it? Let's say you were the lead skater or you're the coach. Are you going to go berate that person that came in fourth? No, you shouldn't. They did their best, you know, but maybe you knew they were out partying the night before. So what do you do then? You take them to task for it, right? But then you also comfort them. You do both. So there's a, perhaps a restoration in there in the first incident where you know they've done their best. That was the best they had to give. But there's also perhaps a rebuke in there that you know it isn't the best that they could have come up with. You know they could have done better and they failed the team. It's the same for us. We exist in this body to help one another. That's why God made the church, so that we could help one another. So we are to bear one another's burdens. And in the situation such as I just described, where you're in a race and we're in a race, do the appropriate thing. God wants you to do the right thing. At times, rebuke will be necessary. It's uncomfortable, but you've got to do it. And at other times, restoration is what's called for. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, uh, your word which can so clearly instruct us on what you would have us to do. Uh, we pray, Lord, that we would be uh, not only attentive to your word, but attentive to the application of it. Uh, Lord, please teach us, guide us, have your Holy Spirit to fill us, and have us to be filled with something, that being you and your Holy Spirit. And we pray, Lord, that for those of us that know that we are often running on empty and have nothing to offer. We pray, Lord, that you would instruct us to fill ourselves up and be of use to our fellow Christian. We thank you now for this time. We thank you for this worship service and pray your blessing upon everyone present. In Jesus' name we pray.